Genesis 23, we're reading about the close of Abraham and Sarah, and we're also seeing a passing of the mantle to Isaac. Sarah is mentioned 53 times in Scripture. You know, I came from a denomination that venerated Mary as the example of womanhood. And it's like, no, 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 we got Sarah, right? Like, God put her there as an example to us. And there is a lot to learn. We're going to recap a bit of her life. Four times after she, her death, she's continued to be mentioned and. We'll, we'll cover some of those scriptures. You know, the, the, the beauty of the New Testament is, is it's really the Old Testament uh, that those applications are concealed in the Old Testament and they're revealed in the New. And, and you notice the New Testament's so much shorter. You know, they get right to the point. And that's what I like about New Testament is it's just like, all right, let's just cut out the fat. Let's just get to the point. But we are given these examples to learn from. And so um, we're going to just do a recap of her life here briefly. In Hebrews 11.4, it says, By faith Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, though which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through, through it he being dead still speaks. So again, Sarah being dead, she still speaks. Sarah is a great source of encouragement. Her and Abraham could have been married about 100 years. I mean, I've been married 20, and you know my joke. Oh, my marriage is wonderful. Ask my wife. Probably not so much, you know. She's the one that's got to deal with my mess, right? Being married to a man of faith is not necessarily a bed of roses, right? It's, it's difficult you know, it's even worse being married to a man who isn't of faith, right? I mean, good marriages take time. Bad marriages, what, take more time. So pick the, pick, who here likes marriage problems? Because I don't like single problems. <laughs> but 100 years. I mean, you guys, some of you guys are approaching 20, some of you guys a couple months, right? You know, you, you realize that, could you do it for 100 you know, like, what does it take to do it for a hundred? You just, I admire that. Sarah joined Abraham on his faith journey. She, essentially, they are the first missionary couple in the Bible. And how would you define a missionary? I would put it in these terms. They journeyed to a foreign land that was not their own, and they did not fit in. Right? The gospel is to go out and make disciples. The Midwest gospel is go out and make friends, right? Isn't that what we do? Thou shalt be nice. That's the 11th commandment. Don't be nicer than Jesus, as we kind of had the exhortation. Uh, these guys were what you would call a thermostat versus a thermometer. See, a thermostat controls the temperature of the room versus a thermometer reflects that. You're supposed to stick out, Christian. City on a hill cannot be hidden. Her faith was great, but it wasn't perfect, and yet she struggled in this. 
right? Anyone here struggle to remain faithful to the Lord? Have you had some bumps and some hiccups along the way? I hope someone never lied to you and said, when you come to Jesus, everything will work out. <laughs> See, you and I are born again into what? A battlefield, right? And in, in the body of Christ, usually you're going to get hit first from friendly fire, unfortunately, right? We're the only army that surrounds our wounded and shoots them. And so uh, these guys had to struggle. They had to go through some things. Things are hard, and they, sh- they modeled to us failure and recovery. It says she was barren for 90 years, and God did the impossible. Christian, God is in the business of asking people to do what they can't do for themselves. Romans 9, if you're taking notes, verse 6 says, But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham, but in Isaac your your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise, at the time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. So to her, the New Testament gives her homage here. She was patient. She trusted the word of God. Hebrews 11.11, same thing. By faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed, and she bore a child when she was past the age because she judged him faithful who has promised. We're going to camp in 1 Peter chapter 3 if you want to turn there, but this is a specific statement regarding her. It says, As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror, terror, Sarah was not a subservient, excuse me, Uh, Sarah called Abraham Lord, not in some subservient, inferior slave manner to Abraham. She reverenced him in her heart as an act of faith in an act of submission towards God. And we get to learn from that, and and we're going to backtrack a little in 1 Peter 3. First Peter 3 gives instruction to women whose husbands are not listening to the Lord. That gives us hope. That says God can restore marriages through the faithfulness of a woman. Okay? But there's a specific way women are to respond in that trial, right? And, and so the, the, the point of the, of, of the instruction is, number one, we should be seeking to win people to Christ. And in that, our conduct is as important of a component in that. that that's, that's part of it. God is saying, this is how you conduct yourself in this trial. And it does give us that hope for failing marriages. It's In a way, what it does is then, it allows God to work. This passage will tell us, when God does a work in our life, our endurance becomes a teaching point in our life for others. See, God won't waste your pain in your marriage, especially women, that you may be married to a knucklehead, right? If you're married to a man, you're married to a knucklehead, right? We're, we're knuckle draggers. That's, that's us, right? We're, we're going to talk a little more of that. You know, I, I shoot myself in this. You know, we don't get it the first time around. But in that, your struggle is really preparing you for ministry. 
See, God's taking you through something difficult, so not only does he do a work in your life, you can show others how to overcome and recover too. See, we're all tempted in a like manner. Our marriage problems are not specific just to us, right? We're all unique, right? Every one of us is uniquely alike. <laughs> we're all different. No, no, we're all the same. So God will do that work, but then he will use it with other people. That's the encouragement. And again, the emphasis here is this is spoken to a woman who's married to a man who is not listening to God. And that's where Sarah learned to call, call Abraham Lord because she's really trusting God. Let's, let's jump into 1 Peter's text here. Wives, so we're in chapter 3 of 1 Peter. It says, wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. Husbands, write that down, highlight it, and he's not paying attention, highlight it. <laughs> Husbands, likewise, dwell with them with understanding. Isn't that the hardest verse in the Bible? They change, don't they? There's a new book that comes out every year, you know. Dwell with them with understanding. That keeps us busy. Giving honor to the wife as the weaker vessel and as being heirs together of the grace of life that your prayers may not be hindered. That's what Sarah's life models to us. So let's jump into Genesis 23. We'll start at verse 1 here. It says, Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. So Sarah died in Kirjath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan, and Abraham came to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. We're going to see how Abraham is going to honor Sarah. Number one, he wept. He mourned her death appropriately. He honored her with sorrow. What's the shortest verse in the New Testament? Jesus wept, right? Jesus was emotional, right? It's okay. Boys cry. Just don't do it in public, you know? There's an appropriate time, you know? And you know how it is. You just, you just come up with the alibi. Ah, oh, man, the allergies this time of year. Oh, I cut onions. Oh, right, right. <laughs> yeah. He wept. He discharged his sorrow. Bible tells us we are to mourn with those who mourn and to rejoice with those who rejoice. But we sorrow different than the world. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 says, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring him those who sleep in Jesus. Abraham knew he would see Sarah again. 
Bible tells us we were created for life. And like an intrusive species, death entered the world through sin. You and I, Christian, we were never intended to experience death. That's why death seems to be difficult, right? Isn't it hard when you have a loved one that even as a believer, you, 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 you will mourn, you will feel sorrow, you'll feel grief, and that, that's part of it because that's something that God never intended us, right? In the garden, they were supposed to have uninterrupted fellowship with God, access to the tree of life, but, you know, Grandpa Adam messed it all up for us, but, you know, Jesus came back, and what did Jesus defeat? He defeated death, right? So that doesn't remove its sting, A believer's sorrow is deeper because our relationships are deeper, okay? But we have hope unlike the world. I'm always blessed at a believer's funeral. I I love funerals. I'm that guy. I love doing funerals. I like to watch Christians mourn, right? Uh, Allison, your mother told me because she was an ER nurse, she'd watch believers die, and it was like, Jesus is coming, right? And then she'd watch the non-believers, which was torment and screaming and judgment was, it's fascinating. See, because believers, we go into eternity. We will be reunited with our loved ones, but remember, Christian, that's not the, the draw to go to heaven. The presence of Jesus Christ is. That's why we want to go to heaven, because Jesus is there. Our reunion with our loved ones, well, that's a bonus, Another way Abraham honors Sarah is with a burial. His one possession on the earth is really the his and her burial plots with the title deed, what we're going to read about here. This is the only thing he really truly claims to own. He buys this cave and it costs him something. He pays full market value for this. This is a great expression of his faith. See, he always considers himself a visitor, a pilgrim, a foreigner, a stranger in the land of Canaan. He knew he was passing through. But not only will he bury his wife's bones here, he'll bury his own bones here. Right? I believe you can go, well, depending on the political climate, this, this shrine still exists over on the West Bank. So if you've got a pole-proof vest, you'll be able to visit. We've gotten close, but <laughs> part of our Israel tour, we go to the West Bank. Uh, but it's there. Verse 3 says, Then Abraham stood up from, being, from before his dead and spoke to the sons of Heth, saying, I am a foreigner and a visitor among you. Give me property for a burial place among you, that I may bury my dead out of my sight. And the sons of Heth answered Abraham, saying to him, Hear us, my lord, you are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our burial places. None of us will withhold from you his burial place, that you may bury your dead. Then Abraham stood up and bowed himself to the people of the land, the sons of Heth. And he spoke with them, saying, If it is your wish that I bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and meet with Ephron, the son of Zohar, for me, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he has which is at the end of the field. Let him give to me at full price as property for a burial place among you. Now Ephron went among the sons of Heth, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the presence of the sons of Heth, and all who entered at the gate of the city, saying, 
No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field and the cave that is in it. I give it to you in the presence of the sons of my people. I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed himself before the people of the land, and he spoke to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, saying, If you will give it, please hear me. I will give you money for the field. Take it from me, and I will bury my dead there. And Ephron answered Abraham, saying to him, My Lord, listen to me. The land is worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? So bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out the silver for Ephron, which he had named in the hearing of the sons of Heth, 400 shekels of silver, currency of the merchants. So the field of Ephron, which was in Machpelah, which was before Mamre, the field and the cave which was in it, and all the trees that were in the field, which were within all the surrounding borders, were deeded. That's important, right? They need to show this to um, Palestinians right now. Uh, and after this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre. That is in Hebron in the land of Canaan. So the field and the cave that is in it were deeded to Abraham by the sons of Heth as property for a burial place. Now the next step we're going to see how Abraham honors Sarah is by simply moving forward. This is not the end of Abraham's story. Okay? To live is Christ, as Paul writes to the Philippians. He wrote that epistle while awaiting a death sentence in a Roman prison. Okay? To live is Christ. So while you and I are still drawing air, there is work to be done. He wasn't going to let this stop his life. We're going to see he remarries and has six more children. Now, I have two children in which I've obtained in my late 40s. That's a lot of work, right, Howard? I mean, remember free time? Yeah, yeah. Remember 2022 like it was last year, you know? (laughs) Six more kids, and he's, what, 125 years old? No, older than that. He's like 140. Guys, you know. He remarries, has six more kids. But remember, to live is Christ. So he, he, here's the thing, Christian. You don't have to remarry. I mean, Paul wrote the idea of to live as Christ after we, we could see maybe Paul was married to be a member of the Sanhedrin and his wife may have abandoned him. He remained single so he could get more done. Uh, you don't have to do that. That's just the way he manifests that. I think Abraham just, you know, from us. We did some marriage counseling videos with that Kevin Lehman, and he says, you know who the most marriable man is? Is a widower. He's all tuned up. He knows how to put the toilet paper on correctly. He knows to leave the seat down when he's done. (laughs) But, you know, I mean, a married man who's lived married for so long is a great husband for someone who wants to be married. So he continued. He probably forgot how to wash his robe. He, he probably realized the, uh, the, the magic kitchen counter stopped working when Sarah died. The magic laundry basket didn't unpack itself, right? You understand that, men? When, you, when your wives leave, all of a sudden you're like, you're like a T-Rex. You're like, I can't, I can't do anything, you know? Like, I just can reach the phone and order pizza. <laughs> he needed to get remarried. So let's roll into Genesis 24. Genesis 24, it's going to switch to Isaac. Isaac being 40. I was going to call this portion the 40-year-old virgin. 
But I don't know if that would have been appropriate, so I just put it as a parenthetical statement. Isaac's 40. He's unmarried. This is a 4,000-year-old love story that we're going to read about in Genesis 24. There's two things we're going to find in Genesis 24. Number one, these are principles for the unmarried. Second, this is an illustration of the work of the Holy Spirit. Verse 1 says, Abraham was old, well advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. Abraham's going to expire. He needs to turn the mantle over to Isaac. And, and with that, Isaac needs to separate from the creature comforts of mom and dad. I mean, he's 40 years old living in his dad's basement. Time, time to move on, bruh, you know. And Middle Eastern culture said that was appropriate. But, you know, it's, it's very specific in Genesis where it says a, a man must leave his mother and father because we're not inclined to leave, right? If you feed your teenage boys too long, you'll be feeding adult boys, you know, at some point, you got to start buying more salad kits so they go out and buy the food they like. Then you change the locks when they go out for food. Uh, so there's this transference going on here. But one of the principles that uh, is explained in this passage here is let those who have spoken truth into your life continue to do so. Abraham... Excuse me, Isaac respects Abraham's insight. And in the context of principles for unmarried, you need to listen to the red flags of the people that speak truth into your life. They can see things you don't, right? The worst reason to get married is we're in love. What does that even mean? We've fallen in love. We talk about falling in love like we step in a pothole, right? There's no basis for romantic marriage in the Bible. It's a product of biblical marriage. Verse 2 says, So Abraham said to the oldest servant in his house, who ruled over all that he had. This, this oldest servant we had mentioned earlier was Eleazar. Eleazar is, is a, a model and a type of the Holy Spirit. And so he's a steward over Abraham's house. He says, please put your hand under my thigh and I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. But you shall go to my country and to my family and take a wife for my son Isaac. So not only do we have this idea of separation, but there's this idea of you need to fish in the right pond. The Bible defines idolatry as wanting something that God doesn't want you to have. And so when it comes to picking a mate, we are not to be unequally yoked as Christians with non-Christians, especially in an important relationship like marriage. God would never send you a non-believer to marry. We don't flirt to convert, right? Missionary marriage, or no, missionary dating leads to what? Missionary marriage, Okay. But this idea of being unequally yoked that Paul explained to the Corinthian church is an aggregarian term where if you were to take two separate breeds of animals and put a yoke between the two in, in, in the effort to pull a plow, 
animals pull at a different rate. And if you have dissimilar animals, it'll actually cause injury to both. Not to mention chafing and all sorts of irritation. And you end up not getting anything done. Christians are forbidden to marry or even date non-Christians. But even within Christianity, you should be looking for a mate that has similar callings as you do. Right? You don't want to marry the wrong person so that you can't fulfill your duties as a Christian. Right? God wouldn't do that to you. That would be, that would be cruel and unfair to marry someone who clearly doesn't want the same things you do. Verse 5, it says, And the servant said to him, Perhaps the woman will not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I take your son back to the land from which you came? But Abraham said to him, Beware that you do not take my son back there. This next principle is never go backwards. If things don't go as planned, don't go back to the old ways. As Christians, we need to sit and wait and even prepare for the blessing that God has, particularly when it involves marriage. The advice given to me was, be the man of the dreams of the woman of your dreams. Same thing for women, right? As a single woman, you want to be the woman of the dreams of the man of your dreams. And you know what? Our culture has really made a mockery of marriage. People are not getting married because, number one, there are no husbands. We have Peter Pan men, right? We have men that have, they're highly addicted to video games, marijuana, and online pornography. They have no need for a woman. And vice versa, you have young ladies who are exploiting their bodies for financial gain through inappropriate videos and pictures they're selling. Men don't want to marry that, and women don't want to marry that, right? We've, we've, we've forsaken, like, what the point of marriage is, and so we have to be... Uh, one of the filters that was given to me was, don't drag behavior as a single into your marriage, because those sins will linger, okay? It's, it's, it's be that person you want that other person to marry. We need to be of godly character, Verse 7, the Lord God of heaven who took me from my father's house and from the land of my family and who spoke to me and swore to me saying, to your descendants I give this land. He will send his angel before you and you shall take a wife for my son from there. Now, Christian, as you're walking in obedience and, and not just in this idea of uh, uh, a mate as a, as a marriage partner, but in your ministry in general, remember, God will work both sides of the street for you. Okay? One of the things the Bible doesn't give us instruction on is how to date. My definition of dating, this is just my opinion, for those who are, uh, uh, don't like my opinion, uh, dating is just rehearsal for divorce. Right? It's a harmful process of elimination. And you, you, you build up bitterness, you build up, you build up a hardness of heart because of all the scorn you may endure in a dating-type culture. Dating really didn't exist in the world until about 100 years ago, right? It's a product of our modern culture. But before that, there was a lot of chaperoning. Your parents would arrange your marriage. The community would keep you accountable. There were limits 
on men and women's interactions, right? We've changed from that. You guys know I met my wife the old-fashioned way, the internet. But it was before social media. I had chat rooms. <laughs> but my motive wasn't to look for a mate. My motive really was to occupy my mind while I was going through a season of sobriety. And so God, through his sovereignty, decided, hey, bro, if you don't have someone 600 miles away to talk to and pray for you, you ain't going to make it. You know, and it just happened to work out well that she's beautiful and had poor eyesight because she looked at my picture and was like, oh, for me? One day that's mine? So it caused me to, like, brush my teeth and comb my hair more. You know, it's funny how, how uh, something, some relationship like that causes you to start taking care of yourself, especially guys. You know, I, I've encouraged some singles, like, they, they whine. Why aren't I married? Well, number one, you're about 40 pounds overweight. Number two, you and a toothbrush don't cross paths often. Um, deodorant isn't about you, bro. It's about others. Use it. It's okay. You know, cologne is made because people smell bad. Use it. You know, so it's, it's amazing when you have the goal in mind. And that's, I believe, what the Lord did in my life was like, hey, he told me, he says, he says don't conduct yourself the way you would with other women. So we, we just really focused on our relationship with the Lord and... Um, our intimacy, we used the barrier method. It was called Wisconsin. <laughs> we had cell phones. Remember night and weekend packages? Remember those old days? We didn't respect that boundary. We had $300 a month cell phone bills because, come on, guys, you know, you hang up first. No. You hang up first. No. You hang up first. Yeah. The early 2000s, man, we had it rough, guys. You know, you think it's rough, young guys, right now? It's, it was hard back then. Some of you guys were born then, weren't you? Where were you born, Allison? 86. So you kind of understood. Dial-up? You probably remember dial-up? Oh, yeah. Man. Oh, man. It was the family computer. Yeah. Yeah, mom and dad watched your text messages you were sending. I actually was sending text messages one afternoon because I saw that Michelle signed on. Guess who it was? Is dad. And so I'm being like, like rated G, like boyfriend. Hey. And he baited me. He let me go. And he's like, hey, this is dad. You're like. It's a lovely shirt you're wearing, Mr. Cleaver, right? <laughs> Turn into Eddie Haskell. Did anyone find the rabbit? Because I'm on the trail. All right. So. <laughs> The Lord will work both sides of the street for you. So when things don't work out, you got to remember, don't go back to your old ways. Don't take matters into your own hands. Remember, God has a plan. God does not have the perfect someone from you or someone for you. Remember that. There is no such thing as a perfect husband or wife. There's only one perfect person in your marriage, and it's Jesus Christ. So marriage is really a divine practical joke because God takes two sinful people and throws them in a covenant re relationship simply to refine one another. Think of how sandpaper works, right? It wears those high edges off of each other, you know, 
People will get divorced over what's called an irreconcilable difference. My marriage is one giant irreconcilable difference. In our home church, everyone laughed at us because they would never put me and my wife together as a couple. They would call us the weirdest marriage they've ever seen, right? I'm like, yeah, it was arranged. I mean, would you really pick us two to be married? I mean, for real, it just, it's, it works. And that's the divine humor of God. God will give you who you need, not who you want. But if you have a desire for marriage, then God has a plan for your spouse, and you need to trust God to provide your spouse. There's this warning. It says, if the reality is, is if the woman or the man just isn't into you or into the plan God has for your life, then hey, you know what? They're not the right one. Don't try to push it. Don't try to force it. Don't try to linger. Just, just realize that God isn't going to give you somebody that you're going to have to convince or twist their arm. Verse 9, it says, So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham his master and swore to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed. For all his master's goods were in his hand, and he arose and went to Mesopotamia to the city of Nahor. Now Nahor was who? That was Abraham's uncle. That was, that was, uh, this is where Isaac's wife was going to descend from him. Verse 11, and he made his camels kneel down outside the city by a well of water at evening time, the time when women go out to draw water. Then he said, O Lord God, my master Abraham, please give me success this day and show kindness to my master Abraham. So another principle we can take from this, God will put obstacles in your way that only he can move. I mean, Eleazar is going, man, I don't know how to pick. I don't. And so he's going to need the Lord to give him discernment and to show him some things here. You know, even in, in, in my premarital counseling, even before, you know, finding my wife-to-be is um, you don't need to help God out to meet the most important relationship in your life. We have this fear, like if we don't go out and go to Tinder and we go to the bars and the nightclubs and go out there, like we're going to miss the person God has for us. You know, God brought... Adam, his wife, and he made it real simple. Adam looked around, hmm, which one of these ladies? Well, the only one. He had, isn't it, I wish it would be that easy some days. Like, oh, it's quite evident who I'm to marry. And we don't have that privilege today. But so something like as important as your spouse, I mean, God has to really show you, but he will, and he will bring the right person for you at the appropriate time, and you will know, Right? You will absolutely know. You'll have, you know, I, I, when I met my wife, in our example was God really spoke to both of our hearts the, per, the first time we met. And he was just like, this is going to be your wife. Now go brush your teeth. And I was just, okay, very good. My pastor said, do you know what women find really attractive on men? Yeah, I'm like, what's that? What's that? He says, a full-time job. Go get one. You're probably going to marry a woman who has bad habits like wanting a place to live and food to eat, and you better be able to provide for that. And I, was, I wasn't employable at that time, you know, and so that was, I had to, 
it, it took a while before I became employable, so I did, wasn't always this stellar of a man of God. I was, I was a real humdinger, right? You, that's why God didn't have you at the church at that time. You would have just destroyed me, dog. Like, yeah. Oh. Yeah, so. <laughs> and other guys picking on me. We talked about that in other sermons. Uh, so. God's going to put some obstacles in the way. Only he can move. Verse 13, Behold, here I stand by the well of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Now let it be that the young women to say, whom I say, please let down your pitcher that I may drink. And she says, drink, and I will also give you camels a drink. Let her be the one. Some of you ladies would say, get your own drink. <laughs> no, she's like, hey, I got it. Let her be the one you have appointed for your... Uh, have, okay, let her be the one you have appointed for your servant Isaac. And by this I will know that you will have shown kindness to my master. And it happened before he who had finished speaking that, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her pitcher on her shoulder. Now the young woman was very beautiful to behold, a virgin. No man had known her. And she went down to the well, filled her pitcher, and came up. Now, you and I have these Thomas Kincaid snapshot visions of what a well is, right? It's got the little, like, it's got the gable over the little stone circle, and there's like a glow coming out of it. For us who have been to Israel, a well is this giant sandstone cistern that's about 150 feet deep in the ground, full of water, and you had to walk down a stairway with no railing to draw water physically and then walk back up. She's willing to do this. This is hard work. But what Eleazar is looking for is, is this woman a servant? Does she have a servant's heart? Verse 17, And the servant ran to meet her and said, Please, let me drink a little water from your pitcher. So she said, Drink, my lord. Now keep in mind, these pitchers were not little Kool-Aid pitchers, right? These were big stone jars that empty probably weighed 30 pounds, you know. So the, these aren't to be reckoned with. It's probably burly. So she said, drink, my lord. Then she quickly let her pitcher down to her hand and gave him a drink. And when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. Then she quickly emptied her pitcher into the trough, ran back to the well to draw water, and drew for all his camels. And the man, wondering at her, remained silent so as to know whether the Lord had made his journey prosperous or not. <laughs> this is biblical trash talk. The Holy Spirit's digging on you and I, men, because it's telling us men are real slow to perceive. You know, is this the one, Lord? Hmm. I wonder. Hmm. Right? Have you realized oftentimes men... You're the last to know, right? You have your friends kind of joke about you, about your callings and your gifts and what you're supposed to do, but you don't get it, you know? You're in good company here. We are slow to perceive. Verse 22, so it was when the camels had finished drinking that the men, the man took a golden nose ring weighing half a shekel and two bracelets for her wrists weighing 10 shekels of gold, and said, whose daughter are you? Tell me, please, is there room in your father's house for us to lodge? It's like the Mr. T starter kit here. Um, <laughs> so she said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, Milka's son, whom she bore to Nahor. 
Moreover, she said to him, We have both straw and feed enough and room to lodge. Then the man bowed out his head and worshipped the Lord. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his mercy and his truth toward my master. As for me, being on the way, the Lord led me to the house of my master's brethren. Again, just reinforcing the idea, the Lord's going to work both sides of the street for you in this covenantal style of relationship and even in your own walk with the Lord. The Spirit-led life, right, it's incremental. God doesn't give us all the instructions and the, and the, the outcome up front because he knows you and I will booger it up. It's, it's really a progressive revelation. You take one step at a time and the Lord will lead you accordingly. So the young woman ran and told her mother's household these things. Now Rebecca had a brother whose name was Laban. Oh, this guy's going to be a real humdinger down the road here. And Laban ran out to the man by the well. So it came to pass when he saw the nose ring and the bracelets on his sister's wrists, and when he heard the words of his sister Rebekah saying, Thus the man spoke to me, that he went to the man, and there he stood by the camels at the well. And he said, Come on, or excuse me, come in, O blessed of the Lord, why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. Then the man came to the house, and he unloaded the camels, and provided straw and feed for the camels, and water to wash his feet, and the feet of the men who were with him. Food was set before him to eat, and he said, I will not eat until I have told about my errand. And he said, Speak on. So he said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has blessed my master greatly, and he had become great. And he had given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male and female servants, and camels and donkeys. And Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when she was old, and to him he had given all that he has. Now my master made me swear, saying, You shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites in whose land I dwell, but you shall go to my father's house and to my family and take a wife for my son. And I said to my master, Perhaps the woman will not follow me. But he said to me, The Lord before whom I walk will send his angel with you and prosper your way, and you shall take a wife for my son from my family and from my father's house. You will be clear from this oath when you arrive among my family, for they will not give her to you. Then you will be released from my oath. Covered all that. And this day I come to the well and say, O Lord God of my master Abraham, if you will now prosper the way which I go, behold, I stand by the well of water, and it shall come to pass that when the virgin comes out to draw water, and I say to her, Please give me a little water from your pitcher to drink. She said, Drink, and I will draw your camels also. Let her be the woman from whom the Lord has appointed for my master's son. But before I had finished speaking in my heart, there was Rebecca coming out with her pitcher on her shoulder, and she went down to the well and drew water. And I said to her, Please let me drink. She made haste and let her pitcher down from her shoulder and drank, Drink, and I'll give you camels and a drink also. So I drank, and she gave the camels a drink also. Then I asked her and said, Whose daughter are you? She said, The daughter of Bethuel and the horse son, whom Milka bore to him. So I put the nose ring on her nose and the bracelets on her wrist. And I bowed my head and worshiped the Lord and blessed the Lord of my master Abraham, who had led me into the way of truth to take the daughter of my master's brother for a son. Now, if you will deal kindly and truly with my master, tell me. And if not, tell me that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. Then Laban and 
Bethuel answered and said, The thing comes from the Lord. We cannot speak to you either bad or good. Here is Rebekah before you. Take her and go and let her be your master's son's wife. And the Lord had spoken. Now what I draw from this is the spirit will bear witness to a union such as important as a uh, prenuptial agreement, some marriage covenant. It'll be evident to the people around you. Right. It's important, you know, in our culture, we try to create we don't have a dating culture per se, but we have a courtship culture. Right. And, and courtship really just allows everything to be centered along the lines of, of the principles of God. But it also provides um, outside counsel in, in the multitude of counselors. There's there's wisdom. And so it will be evident to the people around whether or not this is godly. I, I'll just tell you a story because I'm at the pulpit. <laughs> when I met my wife, she was living in Lansing. I was living in Minnesota, and she decided to bring her family up to meet me. And um, usually as, as men were required or not required, it's just good practice to just go and ask permission to court a man's daughter. I never got the privilege. Her family saw me, and they're just like, here you go. Take the girl. And we'll bring the horse and the dog next time. Hey, guys, vet your prospective wife to see if she has livestock. Just, just letting you know. Three mouths are a little more to feed. But I was willing to put up with it. But I didn't get a chance. And so I've, it took me 20 years. I asked my mother-in-law. I said, why didn't you vet me? Like, I, I fear for my daughter's future husband. All right. Scott, you understand you're going to show him how well you can clean your pistol, right? You know, the idea like, hey, let's go, let's go play Frisbee. Let me bring the nine millimeter, you know, let me just. <laughs> so, so I just simply asked her, I said, why didn't you vet me? She says, well, my husband and I prayed and the Lord said, this is to be your husband. And we were okay with that. And she's yours. I really wanted to kind of go through the ringer, but. Lucky me. So, verse 23. Then the servant brought out jewelry of silver, jewelry of gold, and clothing, and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave precious things to her brother and to her mother. And he and the men who were with him ate and drank and stayed all night. Then they arose in the morning, and he said, Send me away to my master. But her brother and her mother said, Let the young woman stay with us a few days, at least ten. After that, she may go. And he said to them, Do not hinder me, since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away so that I may go to my master. So they said, We will call the young woman and ask her personally. Then they called Rebekah and said to her, Will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. So they sent away Rebekah, their sister, and her nurse, and Abraham's servant, and his men. Now, there's a timing in this, too, and I, I just draw from an example in our, our relationship is I didn't have to strive to put things together with my wife where she was already going to college. She's like, well, when I finish college, then we'll get married. Well, when's that going to be? <laughs> oh, just, I got to do this and that. I'm like, okay. Well, that June, she was able to move up. I mean, it was her own decision. I just, I patiently waited for the Lord to work on her. I didn't strive. I didn't push. You know, I just wanted to see God put it all together. And so she was willing to co-sign. She hasn't even met Isaac yet. But something here is bearing witness. 
She didn't ask if he was ugly at all. You know, speaking to our home church, there was a, a young man I was discipling, and his issue was he was the better-looking one in his relationship to this young lady. I'm like, why do you spend so much time in the mirror? You get a haircut every week. He has the flat-brim hat, the starch shirt, drinks creatine. I got to look good. I said, hey, come with me. And so we walked into our sanctuary. It was a Thursday night midweek study. I said, look at all the godly men in this church. Look at all the sweatpants they're wearing. Look at all their novelty Walmart t-shirts they're clad in. These guys are ugly as a mud fence, but look at their wives. Your pastor married a model. And I went down the list of all the other godly women in the... You were there. You understand. You catch my joke. It was like, there are some real... But these men were men of character. Right? And they saw, these women saw, what was valuable to them was the character in which they exhibited. And looks were on the list, but not as high up on the list as, let's say, men would place it. Not that you shouldn't take care of yourself, but you don't need to fight your wife over bathroom time, right? Verse 60, And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, Our sister, may you become the mother of thousands of, <laughs> of ten thousands. You didn't read this at your brother's wedding, did you? <laughs> you could use this as a gag card, you know. Ah, the, you can be the mother of ten thousands. And you may, and you may, your descendants possess the gates of those who hate them. Then Rebekah and her maids arose, and they rode on the camels and followed the man. So the servant took Rebekah and departed. Now Isaac came from the way of Beer Lahai Roy, for he dwelt in the south. This is our key verse here, verse 63. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field in the evening, and he lifted his eyes and looked, and there the camels were coming. What was Isaac doing through this whole process? He was waiting. He was being patient. And, and I would say he was preparing through his meditation. I remember when I, when I first started walking with the Lord seriously, uh, our, our church had a coffee house and um, we had a lost and found rack and someone had one of those really nice life application family study Bibles. Oh, leather. Oh, and someone left it. And I've got the coverless Gideon's eight-point font microfish Bible, like the one that I don't know where I got it. I just had it, and I just saw this, and I was looking through all the, the silly little notes. And I'm like, I really want this Bible. So I went to the counter, and I asked the woman working at the counter. I said, hey, is that possible? I mean, someone obviously didn't find this book important enough to bring it with them. Can I have it? So she calls, calls the pastor, and she explains the situation, and she comes up to me, and she has the Bible, and she goes, she made a show of it, rips out the presented to page. You know how every Bible has that, like you get this for your whatever on this date. She says, wasn't important to them. Here you go. But I remember being fascinated about the passages that spoke about being a godly father and a godly husband. And, and the backstory story is, is I don't come from a family where that was modeled. I was a pagan, heathen, pig dog, like the men before me. And so my idea of husbandry was formed. My parents were never married to each other. Uh, 
you know, there was just a lot of imperfection. And that's just the stock God had to choose from. So I, in a sense, I didn't know what to do. So, but I'm fascinated. I'm reading this going, so this isn't just theoretical. Like, this is possible to actually play this out. Like, there was something attractive about it. And, and part of where I went with it is I wanted to be the husband and the dad to my wife and kids that someone wasn't to me. And, and I'm not saying this as a shame to my parents or, or whatnot. That's not the issue to dishonor them. But that's what they were working with. And so in that, I think in that lack, God put a fight in me to be like, you know what? I'm going to be better at this. And I didn't necessarily have a working example, but the, the thing is, is all I needed to do was love Jesus in order to love my family better and let, let the Lord work out in me. But notice Isaac wasn't out sowing his oats. He wasn't dating. He wasn't being a Peter Pan, none of that. He was meditating, you know, there's a lot to just spending time with God in his word and going, how can I make this practical? How can I apply this? And Isaac didn't even have the benefit of the full Bible. He just had what his dad had imparted to him. But the idea is focus on the Lord, trust in the Lord, prepare. Verse 64, then Rebekah lifted her eyes and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from her camel, for she had said to her servant, I'm going to put it in man speak, who is this man walking in the field to meet us? Maybe from girl speak it was, who is this man walking in the field? The servant said, it is my master. So she took a veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into her mother Sarah's tent, and he took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. So in a nutshell, we see Eleazar, portrait of the Holy Spirit in this long, drawn-out, repetitive narrative. And, and, and what it consummates to this, the Holy Spirit gives gifts, right? The Holy Spirit we, we're, we're on paper, we're a charismatic church. Now, we're not shunned she's a coming from a Honda kind of thing, and we're not swinging from the chandeliers and slain in the flesh and all that TV stuff. We believe the Holy Spirit has given us a book outlining what the gifts of the Holy Spirit are because we don't believe they ceased at the time of the apostolic age, right? That, we don't believe that. Why would God give us an outdated service manual? He gave us supernatural, spiritual gifts to do the things God has called us to do because we can't do those things in our flesh, right? God does not, what's our pithy saying? He doesn't call the equipped. He equips the called. And so you're going to find those spiritual gifts are there to help you love your wife, love your family, serve in your church, discharge the ministry God has. So there are gifts Holy Spirit gives us. But in that, the Holy Spirit also prepares the bride of Christ. You know, Paul writes to the Corinthian church, I present you as a chaste virgin, as a bride to, to, the, to the groom, Christ. And so you realize, and we're, we're, we're not, we haven't experienced the wedding as believers yet, have we? We will in heaven. But this is a time of courtship and betrothal where God's preparing us down here through sanctification to meet our husband. Right? And so everything you and I are going through is to get ready to consummate our relationship with Christ in heaven. So there is that practical aspect of the working of the Holy Spirit. And understand, the Holy Spirit found us. 
Maybe today you don't have Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. Maybe, maybe you're hearing things for the first time that, that are fascinating. Maybe you're feeling a draw to, to, to get out of the touchy-feely or the, or the give me more information as we go stage in your relationship to God. Maybe it's time for you to step up into a, a covenant relationship with the, the Lord today where you need to realize that he's calling you, he's courting you, he is preparing you because there's a hole in your heart. Isaac's greatest need was not his wife. Marriage is not a cure to loneliness. There's a lot of lonely people in marriages. The key to contentment is to have Jesus in that hole in your heart, right? That's what we say, that you have Jesus in your heart. It's kind of a pithy saying, but the idea is God has made you with a lack There's an obstacle there that you may have tried to fulfill with all sorts of other things. Career, relationships, hobbies, name it. You've tried to fill it with that, and it does bring temporary satisfaction, but in the long run, you realize it doesn't satisfy, and so maybe the Lord's preparing you to bring you to what truly satisfies, and that's a saving relationship with Jesus Christ to the point where you recognize that you are a sinner whose greatest need is to what? Know that when you die, you'll live forever in heaven, in eternity with Christ, but also you need to be forgiven. The greatest ministry of the Holy Spirit is to convict you of sin. It prepares you. It may be harsh. Maybe you feel the, whole, the word of God is against you a lot of the time. Is because the Lord's bringing to a place of confession and repentance and to receive truly the comforting work of forgiveness. If the world could create a pill that would give a clean conscience, someone would be a, a, a trillionaire. But the world cannot do that. Only Christ can. And maybe you're feeling that today. And this is where you need to humbly accept His offer that, look, the person you're looking for is not a mere man. It's the man God. And he is our husband, right? He goes into our world and dies for us. That's the beauty of God is God looked for you. He found you. Maybe you're resistant today. Maybe you need to just do some housekeeping as a Christian. Maybe you need to just yield to what God wants to do. Maybe you're tired of being barren or 40 as a as a believer going i want some fruit in my life and the lord wants to bring you into that part of the relationship and so it's simple if you want that relationship you just simply confess you're a sinner to the lord and say lord please i receive your forgiveness ask for the holy spirit to come into you become born again and let the holy spirit work the things out in your life that he needs to but you're born into a battlefield. Be prepared. Understand. Count the cost. Christianity isn't easy, but it's worth it. And that's my exhortation today. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you and praise you for the, the word you've given us today, Lord, that uh, you just draw us close to you, Lord, that we are in a romance with you. You loved us. You chased us. You pursued us. Lord, and we just get to respond. And so we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.